Hello and welcome to Season 2 of We Recover Loudly. In Season 1, we started to shake up conversations about drug and alcohol addiction in the hospitality industry and gave a platform for people to share their experiences of not only addiction, but their journey into recovery. We talked to some amazing NA brands and got into the reasons behind why there is so much addiction in hospitality. This season, we're going deeper into these stories and talking about other challenges we face as an industry, including sexual harassment, mental health, working with neurodiversity, stress and burnout. This podcast is a must listen to anybody working in hospitality as we pull apart the archaic systems that create unsustainable workplace environments and we champion tips and tools for making your hospitality business the best place to work. By sharing these stories out in the open, we help others who are suffering in silence in our businesses. Because when we recover loudly, we stop others dying quietly. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, The Burnt Chef Project. The Burnt Chef Project is a globally recognized, not-for-profit social enterprise. They're fully committed to making the hospitality profession healthier, more sustainable, and they do this by focusing on people's well-being first. They offer free resources online, such as wellness action plans and team checking guidelines. You can also book mental health first aid courses through the website, as well as other bespoke training courses for your hospitality team. We Recover Loudly has partnered with The Burnt Chef to bring to your teams training and education around all types of addiction, safeguarding, and how to support team members in need. If you'd like to hear more information, please contact us on hello at werecoverloudly.com. Right, on with the episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of We Recover Loudly. Today, I'm so excited to be speaking to Canadian chef Devon Rajkumar, otherwise known as Chef Dev. Chef Dev is a well-known face in the culinary world. He is a classically trained, award-winning chef who has worked in some exceptional places, which we will, of course, be talking about shortly, as well as working on multiple television shows, such as Food Network's critically acclaimed Fire Masters. But behind all of the success and the accolades, Chef Dev has previously struggled with addiction, both alcohol and drugs. Now, over 30 months sober, he has been very open about his challenges and he decided to recover loudly, much like we all do here, to use his story to help others. Getting him on the podcast was an absolute must. I really can't wait to get into this chat. But before we get into the juicy stuff, how are you today, Chef Dev? I'm doing very well. I'm grateful to be here. I know we've been trying to set this up for a minute, so I'm just glad to be on with you. These types of interviews and podcasts, I do kind of regularly because it just seems like the right thing to do. It took me a while to get comfortable to share my story because I was a very outspoken. I've always been an outspoken kind of person, very vocal, but it's taken a little while. It took me about a year to get comfortable to really share this story. And I also felt like I needed the credibility to share the story, you know, because in the past I've had sobriety stints of two months, six months, blah, blah, blah. But getting to that year and being content and not restless, irritable discontent, I felt like I was in a place to, to share. So I'm very happy to be here. No, I totally relate to that. Really happy to have you here. It's funny, I don't know if you were the same, but when you get 24 months of sobriety, you feel that you can save the world and <laughs> go around kind of... <laughs> 
I've got a week's sobriety, guys. Who needs saving? But actually, you're right. Having that process, that year, mm. the amount of changes you go through. Were you as ridiculous as me wanting to save the world after 24 hours? Absolutely, 100%. But it's nice to be able to... I'm now very grateful that I did take the time and space. This podcast started when I was 18 months sober. So mm -hmm. I'd had, you know, you kind of had the time to go through the seven stages of grief, you know, the disbelief, the <laughs> denial, yeah. the anger, <laughs> the acceptance. <laughs> so I think it was a, quite an important process as well. Now, I actually also have to shout out and say a big thank you to you because I reached out to you when the podcast was beginning asked you to be on and you had said I will come on on episode 25 and as somebody who hadn't even bought a microphone I was like oh I see you chef dev I will get to episode 25 and this will actually being is released as episode 25 because of that and whether you knew it or not it really did motivate me I get asked to do a lot of podcasts, especially during the pandemic. I was getting asked all the time, chef, can you come on my podcast? Chef, can you do this? Can you do this interview? Can we have this chat? And to be honest with you, I told a lot of people, I told at least 25 people I would do episode 25. 25 is like a favorite number of mine. Maybe two or three people actually came back because the rest of the people did not see the process through. Building anything of value takes a lot of hard effort, work, discipline. Resiliency is so important when you're doing this. So I say that 25 in a way to encourage people. 95% of those people or more, they probably did an episode, two episodes, three episodes, and they're like, oh, not picking up traction, don't want to stick it through. So that's why I said that. So I am so happy and more than willing to do this for you like I said I would. And it actually comes from, I was reading something like maybe five or six years ago where there was, the, I can't remember the girl's name. I can't remember the guy's name, but she had asked this gentleman to come on the podcast. He's a very, very well-known figure. I don't remember. And I don't think it's relevant to the story anyways, but he said something like number 70 or something like that he would do. And this girl went on and did the podcast and went through the ups and downs and built it up. And then when it came time, he was more than willing to do it. So I feel like I'm more lenient than this guy at 25. 70, that's insane. Yeah. yeah, and she's got like a podcast with, I believe, millions of followers now. It was a story that I was reading somewhere. Uh, and that's kind of where I got it from because I just want people to, to see things through. A lot of people just wanted to kind of leverage my audience or leverage me in some way mm. or whatever the case may be. But you got to be willing to see these things through. Like my success as a chef was not overnight. It wasn't even in five mm. or 10 years. You know, I had to keep, showing up every single day no matter what happened absolutely well I haven't quite got millions of listeners but we have got thousands and they definitely appreciate the fact that we've waited till episode 25 because the 10 people that were there <laughs> back in March when no May when we started <laughs> I'm sure now it's nice that it's got a further reach but that aside let's start all the way at the beginning as we do what Mary Poppins start at the very beginning it's a very good place to start did you always have dreams of being a chef? Was this the career for you from the get-go? Definitely not. I was always in the kitchen. As a small kid, as a child, I was always following my mom around the kitchen, licking spoons. There used to be a little stool for me to stand up on so I can get my head over the counter to see what was going on. 
I spent a lot of time with my grandmother, bless her soul, when I was a young kid, whether that was days off school, holidays, my parents had to work, whether that was me getting in trouble from school, I was always going to my grandmother's house, right? My grandmother was an incredible cook and she would cook proper Guyanese food, right? Because we are Guyanese here. So she would cook proper Guyanese food in her home. Some of my favorite memories of cooking and eating as a child are from her little apartment just up the street from where we are, just north of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. This was my childhood. It was very much food oriented. Even when I used to go to temple on Sundays as a young kid, there came a time where I started skipping service upstairs and I was downstairs cooking with my uncles and my aunts for the hundreds of people on Sundays, right? So everybody knew that I was very passionate about food, that there was something there, but I never once really thought maybe I should pursue this as a career. My dad was a wildly successful businessman, senior VP for one of the biggest banks in the world, right? For me growing up, it was medicine, law, engineering, or business. There was no like, follow your passion. I also didn't know, like I was a kid, I was 17, 18, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life out of university, or sorry, heading into university. I never once thought that I could go go follow my passion for cooking. So I bummed around. I bummed around different jobs uh, in business and bumming around different bilingual sales jobs because I speak French. And finally, I summed up the courage at 23 to go to culinary school. When I went to culinary school, everything changed. There was a point in my life where I was writing exams on accounting and stats and, and economics and all this type of stuff. And I could never really get sucked into the work. And I was never really in love with it. And then when I got to culinary school, everything changed. When I started to study master mother sauces and mastering different cooking techniques, you know, memorizing internal temperatures of meat that are cooked, all these, all these things I had already been studying on my own. I finally found that, hey, I'm in a place where I'm, I'm supposed to be, you know, and I never looked back. That was 15 or 16 years ago, and I never looked back, and like everything changed for me. So it took me a while to pursue this professionally. Mm. I'm finally there, and I couldn't be happier. I'm grateful. I love that. I wonder whether you relate to the, it's almost like a cultural thing. You know, my family are from South Africa. We moved to this country when I was very young but you know there is that assumption in a way that working in the service industry is not necessarily an aspirational one for children of immigrants into a new country was that something that was kind of that pressure almost to not do hospitality you know you kind of stuff it down a little bit you know my parents never wanted me to work in this industry at all not because they don't think it's a wonderful one because they see how hard it is was that something that you kind of had to balance? 100%. My dad even told me, you know, actually, check this out. So my first cookbook's coming out in May of 2024. And the reason why that is relevant to the story and not just a shameless plug is because in the introduction of the book, I actually reference my dad's minor disgust when I had made the decision to go to culinary school. My dad, and I actually asked him about it like a year ago when I was writing the cookbook and writing the introduction. I was like, dad, how did you feel when I, when I had decided to go to culinary? And, he, and like, be honest, like, tell me the truth, right? Because he's very proud of me now, you know, after seeing all the things that I've done and what I've built and how people react when they meet me and stuff like that. He's very impressed. And I'm so grateful for that. But uh, he's like, yeah, man, when you told me, it's like, I was sad. I just thought you wouldn't be able to make a good living by doing that, right? So. Yeah, it is what it is. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it is. It's a very much the assumption, I think, sadly. it's It can still be the assumption that it isn't a good living. And as an industry, certainly in the UK, and I'm, I'm sure it's very similar in Canada, North America, the regulations and just the safeguarding that's in place for people coming into the industry don't necessarily exist in the same way that they do in the accounting world or lawyers and things like that. There's not the programs in place or the kind of like the bodies, the governing bodies to make sure that people are being treated well. It is changing, but it's definitely something that there's a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. So much so. (laughs) What kind of restaurant was it then that you first started with? So you did culinary school. So what was your first place that you worked in? What was it? It's a great question. So when I was in culinary school, in my third semester of four, I was to owe like a restaurant in the city 24 hours a week, I believe, as part of an internship. My third semester of four, 24 hours a week, I got to go somewhere. All the kids in my class are going to all the fancy restaurants in Toronto, the Sassafrases and the Scaramouche, North 44, big restaurants in the city, right? For some reason, I don't know what it was in me, but I was of the mindset that if I went to one of these places where all these kids were fighting to get into, if I did that, I wouldn't get the attention and I wouldn't get the hands-on practicality. I think, I don't know where I got it in my head that if I went to one of these places, I'd be either peeling potatoes all day or just doing boring mundane stuff. I really don't know where that came from, but somehow I ended up connecting with a friend who had a friend that started a catering company in Yorkville, mm-hmm. a, po- a posh area of the city. So I went into this kitchen one day. It was at the back of a club. The club was not using the kitchen. So these caterers were in there. They were called the Food Dudes. I looked up on their website and I just had a good feeling about these guys. And I knew I would have a lot of hands-on experience. Mm. I went in to work with the Food Dudes and the amount of growth that occurred over the two and a half, three years I was there was mind-boggling. I got thrown right into the dish pit. <laughs> I was in the dish pit for weeks. These guys were getting, there was three or right four. Right passage though. <laughs> there was three or four chefs in there, right? This is 2009. There were three or four chefs in there. And it made more sense for them to put me in the pit than it was for them to train me on doing something because they needed that. We didn't have a dishwasher back then. So I remember being pissed. I was pissed off that I was back there. <laughs> but I scrubbed. And, and I did what I had to do. Yeah. There were a lot of rites of passage jobs. Like I remember carrying the garbages out. There was an alleyway with maybe eight or nine garbage bins that we used to slam with all our stuff. And I remember like one year in the summer, it was hot and sticky. And I went to open these bins to load them into the van and drive them to the dump. And there were like fucking maggots everywhere. Oh. Um, <laughs> or, you're, or you're taking a bag and it bursts open. You know, and it's like, yeah. oh, please go prep, you know? Okay, Bin juice describe. everywhere. Even describe, yes, I wouldn't even describe, you, like You come home and you shower and you still can't get that smell off you. Anyways. The good old days. Anyways, <laughs> long story short, that was my first job working with the food dudes. I really love that though because it's like, it does make sense because you can be a bigger fish in a smaller pond. And therefore, and you're right, the, the way, the, I mean, the same way for me, the way that we learn in our industry when you actually get out in the real world is that here's your business, go kind of thing. You're thrown yeah. in at that deep end. And the fact that you were able to do that, and obviously that kind of style of business as well is fast paced, intense. It like, was... There's no hiding. There's no sitting and peeling potato. Not that people sit in a Michelin star restaurant, but there's no, 
that there's not that calm that you kind of see in some of these slightly more upscale things. So obviously it just really, yeah, I guess you get to really separate, as they say, separates the men from the boys and all of that ridiculous phrasing. Yeah, you say thrown into the deep end, we say thrown into the shits, right? Because that's really what it was. <laughs> I actually had to teach myself to calm down after leaving Food Dudes because we were always so go, go, go. And uh, I remember when we moved into a larger kitchen, so I was there for a few years, but about a year or two when we moved into a larger kitchen because the company was growing so much, I remember there was a part, we were parked by an LCBO. That's where they sell alcohol in Toronto, right? And people used to come and park and block us in. So I'd have like all my stuff loaded up and I need to get to this event in like one hour and there's someone parked blocking me and I used to like freak out, but you'd always get to events in the shits and you always have to work so fast. But a really cool thing with the food dudes, I will forever be a brand ambassador for that company, right? I'll always, like Adrian Nyman, the executive chef there, like he's in my introduction in my cookbook as well. Like my mentor, I owe him so much, but he's grown that company to a $40 million a year company between the food trucks, between all the different restaurants that he has, between the thousands of caterings that he does a year. He's built that organization and built the Food Dudes empire into something massive. They've even opened up in Miami. There's Food Dudes South now. Oh my God, that's so cool. It's fascinating to see what they've done, but that's where I started. Love that. And that will, obviously that influences everything that then comes, you know, and that makes such sense knowing what you've done since that that is how you started. I was, where you mentioned there about learning how to calm down that adrenaline, you know, I've worked in plenty places where it's intensely busy and that adrenaline and, you know, even from those early on stages, was that something that you kind of clocked that, okay, I'm a bit wired after service. What am I going to do to pull me down? Ah, hello, alcohol. Ah, hello, drugs. Or was it slightly later on that that became an association for you? I was an addict prior to getting into cooking. Yeah. If I went to culinary school at 2000, in 2009, mm. I would have been 16, 9, 23, right? But when I smoked that first joint at 13 or 14, to be honest with you, that was the warm hug that I never got from my father, right? The mm. insecurities I felt walking into a room, they were lifted off me, right? Me trying to fit mm. in with all the cool kids and not be rejected or, or, or that validation that I, that I needed so badly, I got that immediately. I was an excessive weed smoker when I was introduced into alcohol as well. Like, you know, I couldn't get enough. And I always prided mm. myself on trying to ingest things and not let people know on the outside that I've ingested them. So I had built this acting and I wore this mask. So long story short, by the time mm. I got into culinary and I got into the aggressive, fierce hospitality industry and all the challenges that come with it, I was very much an addict at that point already. I had already been introduced into cocaine, MDMA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. Was it the healthiest choice of a profession for me? No, I don't think so. However, no matter what I had chose to do, I would have had these demons and I would have had this thing hiding in the closet the whole time anyways. Yeah, I really relate to how you've described it. And I think it's it's fascinating. And nobody has got the same story when it comes to recovery or indeed addiction. You know, some people like myself, I remember smoking my first joint and being like, this is awful. I don't like it. And it just never sat with me. I had my first drink. Can't remember when I had my first drink because it was that inconsequential. It was that blasé. And I spent many years drinking very socially 
drinking like a hospitality professional which you know (laughs) is always a you know are you an addict or do you just work in hospitality and for me it wasn't until later on that things started to really get out of hand but I think it's important that people realize I was wondering whether or not and you may not whether or not there was any kind of conscious or subconscious draw to working in the industry knowing that there was a lot of excessive kind of drug and alcohol use at the time or zero until you mentioned it there I never even thought about the possibility of there Mm. being abuse of substance in Mm. the industry because here's the other thing when I went to culinary school in 09 I wasn't necessarily interested in becoming a chef my initial plan and I don't say this very often but my initial plan was to become a food critic I had been writing reviews. Interesting. I started a website and we have this, this, we have, you guys have Yelp too. I was like a gold member on Yelp seven years. I was writing, and this is back in the early 2000s, right? So over 20 years ago. So when I initially went to culinary school, it wasn't to become a chef. In my internship, when I went to food dudes and when I started working with food dudes after I left culinary school, it's kind of because I realized I had a knack for this and I had a lot of passion for this. So there was no association prior, zero. I bet also, though, on some, on some strange level, if we'd shared with our parents that we wanted to be a food critic, that probably would have been accepted a little bit more. So no, than, uh, no we're going to be in the dish pit for three years, but don't you worry. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Look, at the end of the day, there is a pandemic when it comes to addiction in our industry. We know it's happening. And as you've very kind of openly said, for me, I was going to be an addict even if I'd become a truck driver or yeah. a fireman. Do you think there was anything in terms of like your working environment that accelerated your usage? Or do you think that there was anything that kind of as you look back over your career that maybe pushed it to go further faster? Or is there not really a correlation for you? You ask great questions. You really do. And yes, I would say working in the industry accelerated things for me because I remember the anxiety and stress that I felt leaving work. You know, I had to numb myself or I felt the need that I had to smoke a joint in me. We were smoking weed throughout throughout the day too. I mean, I remember getting wasted a lot, wasted on the weekends. I remember showing up at after parties in my clothes from like, I would take my clothes off from work stinking of the day but i'd be there at midnight and then you know i wouldn't go home till god knows when quick story for you that has to do exactly with what you said in 2014 i went to treatment i was in-house treatment for 30 days i came out and i managed to string together like 10 months of sobriety i had a sponsor i was doing step work i was going to meetings i had a home group i had a position there blah 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 but five or six months into this i stopped going to meetings I stopped reaching out to my sponsor. I went, moved downtown to open up a restaurant with the Food Dudes group. I got an opportunity to work with like what I would say is two of the best chefs in North America. I was right in between both of them, you know, and I owe them so much to this day. But anyways, when I was doing this job, I was working like 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. One of the chefs that was supposed to open the restaurant with us didn't end up showing up with back pain or something like that back then. So basically, and then the head chef, the executive chef was off doing other shit, you know, getting everything organized. So it really went down from a team of four to a team of two. It was myself and Andrew, Chef Andrew, right? I remember we did a two or three week stint, 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. And we got crushed. And I had one of the toughest stations in that. I was not even sleeping a few hours a night. 
I remember I got one of the toughest stations, the fryer station, where every person that walked into that restaurant, they would order stuff out of the fryer. It was like kind of a modern take on a Southern cuisine. So I had fried chicken skins coming out of there, KFC, I had all kinds of stuff, cornbread, shrimp and grits, everything was coming off my station that if you come into that restaurant to eat, <laughs> boudin balls, everything came off of there. And I remember like, I remember 10 months in and I was at that job. I got yeah. off service easy uh, earlier one night, something to do with the liquor or something like that. I got off service and I went straight to a place that I used to go party and I grabbed and then I went like used by myself for two days. You know, it completely had broken me, that level of stress, anxiety, and work. And when I finally was at a tipping point and a breaking point, I didn't have my spiritual fitness. My spiritual tank was so low at that point. You know, I had nothing left in me and I folded super, super quickly. So yeah, it was the stress of that job and my lack of commitment to my program that caused me to relapse that time. I think that... It's very honest that you say about a lack of commitment to the things, you know, like we're classic, aren't we, as human beings? We do something, whatever it might be, and it makes us feel great. For example, I used to drink a turmeric latte in the morning, you know, one of those, but with, you know, the pepper, no dairy, and it always made me feel really great. It really woke me up, or sometimes a hot water lemon. Mm. Don't do it anymore. Feel like shit in the morning. You know, we're, we're classic for that, aren't we, humans? And then we sit there in our own kind of turmoil going like, oh, why do I feel awful? And you mm. go, hang on, have I done any of the things that used to make me feel good? No, I haven't. So I totally, I appreciate your honesty about, you know, like maybe my program hadn't, I haven't been doing the things that would make sure I was okay, but I'm not being funny. I can't imagine anybody, anybody in this world being able to handle those long shifts, that stress, that, I mean, honestly, I, I love it when <laughs> you made me laugh about the whole fry section. I can remember <laughs> when I worked at a restaurant uh, not that long ago, um, we just said all of the specials were fried and we hadn't kind of like really twigged, you know, when you're just going, oh yeah, that'll be good. Or, oh, and we'll do that and that. <laughs> the poor guy on the fry station is just like, oh, for fuck's sake, <laughs> can I get a break? I don't know if anybody could do that without breaking. It's hard to speak for other people. It's just like, it was really, really hard. It was really, really tough. I remember going in and working as hard as I could nonstop. I remember like holding my pee because I had so much shit to do. Like shit like that, right? Smoking cigarettes in like 30 seconds just to get back and prep. And like literally getting up to the line, getting stations set up for 5 p.m. Guests may not roll in at 5. They may roll in at 5.15 or 5.30. But I remember we set the station up for five and then I'm prepping at my station upstairs, continuing to prep, you know, because we got crushed every night and we had a lot of food to prep. It was a big menu. So and then you get smashed through service and then it's a full teardown, draining the fryers every night, throwing a hanger down there because there was so much dredge from the Kentucky fried squid and the boudin balls and all the fried chicken skins and, and the fried chicken. Everything came out of that fryer, it seemed like. Sorry, can we just take a pause and talk about Kentucky Fried Squid? Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. So basically, Chef Matt Blondin, I mean, you think that's impressive. There was like some items on that menu that were mental. We would break down the squid. Funny story with the squid. I'm in the basement. Like we used to do all our prep downstairs. And I think my knife, because I used my knife so much, I think I hadn't sharpened it in a while. Maybe a few days. I don't, I can't remember but I just remember like I was cutting through this squid and I had so much squid to cut through that this callus here was swollen. It became a bump oh, yeah. that I had to do, right? So I'm there cutting 
And then Chef comes up to me and he's like, that's not how I showed you how to do it, right? Because he wanted to cut really thin, like not super thin, but thinner than the way I was doing it. And I'll never forget when he said that because like he looked at me, he's like, that's not how I showed you how to do it. I'm like, Sorry, Chef. And then I started cutting it thinner because I guess wider strokes was yeah. less strokes ultimately. Yeah, you were probably subconsciously as well protecting your finger because we do, you know, we do things without even meaning to. Our body protects ourselves. So your mm. hand was probably moving that little bit further away oh. because you're not going to want to keep rubbing up. Oh, soul yeah. destroying, hey? So what I would do is I would break down the squid. It would go into a, a buttermilk marinade into a quarter liter deli, a one cup, 250 ml deli. And then we had a dredge upstairs, I believe. So an order would come in, you drain the buttermilk, you drop it in the dredge, you fry it. And then we stacked it up like this. And it was really, and there was other garnishes and stuff like that. But it was really, really pretty. But that was Kentucky Fried Squid. There was a lot of beautiful items on that menu. And that's one of the reasons why I went to go work with Chef Matt Blondin, because uh, he was ahead of his time and he was so talented. So yeah, Kentucky Fried Squid. Absolutely yeah. love that. Never did it Do you know what, though, I don't know whether this is, it's almost like a Stockholm syndrome and I don't mean to downplay anybody who has suffered it with it but as you're describing the intensity of the service the cleaning up that just everything that you went through just there inside me there is a little bit of me going oh I miss it oh I want to do it and I think I don't know whether or not that's just the I don't know the nihilist within me or <laughs> I was interviewing Neil Rankin who's a wonderful barbecue chef and, and and everything else here in the UK which also is obviously very well known over there and he said you know he likened himself to like Bear Grylls and it's like yeah it was it's like being Bear Grylls and even though I know how wrong it is and how awful it is and how unbalanced that is there's a part of me that really misses it and really and, and also feels pride like yeah I'm but beer grills I mean in a weird way it's one of the things that kind of keeps us going isn't it that push that competitiveness with that with self as well as other absolutely I, I totally agree with you so much so that yesterday I was actually on chef Adrian Nyman from the food dudes I was on his Instagram account on watching his stories and he had a couple guys from when I was there chef Davin chef Derek and these guys were head down prepping. And, and Chef Adrian in the story made reference to Bloke and Forth, one of the restaurants or the locations that we cooked at 12, 13 years ago, or at least at least 11 years ago. And uh, I saw those guys cooking and, and I, I said, wow, you know, in all capital letters. But what went through my head at that time was, I wish I was at that station prepping. There was the rush, there was the adrenaline, there was comfort in the chaos there was all those things happening at that time. I do miss it, but my work these days with all the filming and operating restaurants abroad and popping up all over the world and stuff like that, it gets extremely hectic. It's a different type of high pressure. Whereas every, where we were a team before, I work with a lot of teams now, but ultimately the majority of the work that I do falls on me and me alone. It's always my name on, on the line. Yeah. Which is such a different way of working, isn't it? I, again, I can really relate to that because, you know, I work effectively on my own. You know, I've got people that work with me, but it's my name. It's a very different feeling. I do miss it because one of the best things about our industry, and there are multiple incredible things, for me anyway, was that camaraderie and that team. And mm. that when the term family is used in that positive way, in as much as, you know, it's about connection and support and growing as a team and pushing further than you thought you could together, you know, that's, it's a, a really, that's for me, that's a big gold star to our industry. And you don't get that 
in any other industry that I can think of. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. No, again, there's just so such there's so much that we can say that is slightly down on our industry. But I think it is important to always take a pause and just highlight those wonderful things, you know. And as you pointed out, you know, these are people that you work with back in what 2009, I think you said. So it's, just, it's a long time ago, and they're still these really important people in your life. And again, that's something really special. It's almost it's like university friends, college friends, you know, when you go through so many things. You, again, in hospitality, we go through some really hectic, emotionally charged um, experiences, even though it's just a Friday night service. And that does bond you with people in a way that you don't get in other jobs, which again, for people like, again, you and me, we both relate, for people who didn't necessarily always get on that well at school, kind of always felt a little bit outside, kind of always just, I don't know, I always felt a bit like the weird kid. I always felt like the kid that if I wasn't there for a day, no one would realise, you know what I mean? Of and course. Like, just pop back up again and they're like, oh, she's here. Yeah. If you're in a demanding restaurant or if you're in the hospitality industry and, and you're working hard, it, there's no question, you will spend more time with your colleagues at work than you will with your family, you know, and then really they become your family. I mean, imagine me just using that one job as an example. I'm going in there early in the morning and I'm coming home at midnight or 1 a.m. I remember a couple of times, like the majority my life, the majority of my life is six days a week is in that space, is operating in that restaurant. So yeah, there's a very uh, special type of bond and family that's created and nurtured in that space. It's It's very interesting, actually. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. By the time this episode comes out, you will be well into 30 months sober, potentially even 31 months sober. Back 31 months ago, was it you that realized that you had to stop or was it something external that kind of went, look, chef, you, you can't carry on like this? Or, you know, what happened? I can talk about this for a long time. I share the story frequently. And it's like, how much detail do I want to get into? Because I have been sick and tired of being sick and tired for a very long time. The first, I'm 39 now. The first meeting I ever went to, I was 18 years old. My first time, yeah, wow. my first time in treatment, I was 30 years old. It was back in 2014. My last time in treatment was, you know, March 2021. Essentially, if if I could gloss over it quickly, like what really got me to going back to treatment was really, I started to have like really bad chest pains. You know, I was traveling and cooking abroad in 2019. I was in Turks and Caicos cooking for a month. I was cooking through India. I was cook I uh, went to do a pop-up in Pakistan, Lahore, sold out a pop-up for a week straight there. That trip actually led me to going back this March for to opening that restaurant. For anybody that follows me online, they would have seen tons of posts about that. But yeah, getting back to 2019, going into 2020. And then from Pakistan, I flew to Istanbul, Istanbul to London. I'm cooking at Burra Market in London, popping up with my boy Chef Phil at Juma Kitchen. Oh, yeah. Shout out Burra Market. 100%. Well, because as a kid, I was telling you earlier, my mom has uh, her sister here from, from London. Yeah. But we went to the UK a lot. And I'd walk around Burra Market by myself. I would take my aunt's oyster card go to Borough Market and walk around and just look at like all the cheeses that were there and the massive paella that was cooking. As a kid, I used to do this. So I got to cook at Borough Love Market. It. And then my mom's like, yo, you got to get your ass home right now because they're closing the borders, right? So I flew back in and I just, I used a lot over the pandemic. And I created, what happened was, is I began to isolate. 
as we got into 2021, I left for Turks and Caicos again. And uh, I came back and I just really started to develop like really bad chest pains because the use had intensified so much. Trust me, it wasn't pretty prior to this, but I think it was just getting to the point where I was just so paranoid. I was isolating too much. I was just numb all the time. So yeah, I finally decided to go to treatment, but a part of me wishes that I went and gave it a hundred percent sooner, but I've also learned to like not regret things and really try to believe that I'm where I'm at at the time where I'm at because I'm supposed to be there at this time. I have to be grateful. I'm over two years clean now. My career is in a better place than it's ever been. My relationship with myself and everyone around me is better than it's ever been. I've never been more honest and vulnerable. I've never been healthier. I've never gone to the gym this much. Like Everything in my life is going very well as a result of me doing that work and continuing to do that daily practice. So it took me a while to, to get it, but today at this moment, I got it. Yeah. And I think, again, it's really important that people give themselves that compassion, you know, just because, especially in season two of We Recover Loudly, we've really been focusing on if alcohol and drugs were never the problem, they were the solution to the problem. You know, it's something that we talk about a lot in the rooms, you know, what problem were they solving? And when you put those things down, the problems don't go oh yeah, no, we, we checked out. No, we, we're gone. You're like, oh, hey, we've been waiting for you. And that whole kind of, like you just described it, just being completely isolated and completely numb. I really relate to that. Again, I think our our bodies and our lives and the universe and whatever you want to call it gives us little whispers when we're coming off course and we can kind of ignore it. And then we hear another, it gets mm-hmm. a bit louder. And for some of us, eventually it, we have to get smacked in the face and we go, oh, wow. I really need to change my life. And, you know, the universe goes, yeah, I have been mentioning it, but you've been ignoring me. So we're really great for you. Like you said, it's having that gratitude. I also sometimes sit and think if there had been an organization like We Recover Loudly, if there'd been somebody like yourself, Chef Dev, recovering out loud, using social media, sharing your story, would I have five, six, seven years ago gone, do you know what? It is okay to put your hand up and say, I'm struggling and I don't know what to do. Please help me. Would my career have been different, you know, and all of that? So I get that. But at the same time, I really relate to the gratitude of being able to relate to people at the level I can because of what I've been through. You know, as you said, that last bit there, it got me thinking like people promoting mental health. I feel like it was always there. Maybe not as much as it's been in the past several years, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is that I was so deep into denial because if you look at my career five years ago, I was on billboards in Toronto. I was judging on Food Network. I was on date, the longest daytime running show. Like I was, I was a regular on City Line. I was traveling around the world, not as much as I am now, but I had like really posh caterings. Like I was a very high functioning addict. And because materially, like, I was successful on the outside, or at least this is what I told myself. It kind of gave me the permission that I needed to kind of just go off the deep end and disappear for a few days and do all that kind of shit, right? So I was just so deep into the denial that I really had to get slapped around and really get a dose of humility and really smash this ego and really turn it over to a higher power. Like I really... I don't know when that turning point or spiritual experience exactly happened for me, but there was too much fog in my head and too much fog over my eyes for me to see 
how deep in the shit I was prior to lifting that fog for whatever reason. And that the fog only gets lifted through stopping the using, right? And then deep diving internally. And, you know, that's the only way that, that that clarity for me was achieved. But I guess I was just so deep into denial, you know, like you couldn't have, you couldn't have told me five years ago I had a problem. That's basically what I'm trying to get. You couldn't have told me. Well, you know, that's the flip of it. You know, I've asked the same question to, you know, other chefs like Adam Simmons, I've, you know, Dom Robinson, we've taught Neil, all of the other chefs, you know, exactly the same. We recently did a LinkedIn Live talking about how for Adam Simmons, he was openly using cocaine. He was openly leaving the past to have another line. It was right there. But this is while he's at, you know, one of the heights of his career. He's had many, but one of the heights of his career, no one called him out. And whether that is when we do talk about responsibility, personal responsibility versus the industries, but whether that is something as an industry, we need to start taking a bit more notice and a bit more calling out, you know, was there anyone around you at the time that was worried about you or noticing, or were you able to kind of really keep it isolated? Because I personally was kept it very well hidden until I didn't. (laughs) Some people in my inner circle would gently voice things to me. But here's the thing as well. I appeared to be very successful. I was a very good actor. I was really good at convincing you that things were always great. I was that guy, hey, Dev, how you doing? I'm amazing, man. Like, you know, when I was all beat up inside, that's just how I was. I was a phenomenal actor. A lot of my friends that I partied hard with, I knew that looking back, like, what were they supposed to tell me, right? Because I was that guy who always held it together for the most part. And, you know, like I, I was doing very well in my career. I was doing pretty well, you know, outside things were going well, but inside it was an absolute disaster. So yeah, some people did voice to me. Oh, I actually had lunch with someone recently, my, a friend of mine, who we're both in a better place now, but we used to party hard like 10 years ago. And, and she told me straight up, she's like, I was expecting you to drop dead. Because I I used so aggressively and so hard and I mixed so much shit. That was always my thing is I mixed a bunch of shit together. But she told me straight up, she's like, I was just expecting you to drop dead one day. Wow. That's good to have somebody like just say that to you. Yeah. Really like. Yeah. Heavy. But it's not the first time I heard that. Mm. So It's amazing to be able to sit. I mean, one of my best best things about recovery is the people that keep popping back up into my life that I used to work with that have gone oh hi oh I'm five years sober actually or oh and that and again thinking like Jesus I never thought they'd be and I'm sure there are people that are thinking the same about me going oh bloody hell what's she doing all of that I did want to ask you though just before we finish up you know vulnerability that's something that we talk about quite a lot at the moment in our leaders that our managers our head chefs need to show more vulnerability show more about that internal that you were just discussing and that maybe that's a way for us to if we're allowing our leaders to be more vulnerable maybe that will stop them from then you know we get home we feel like the biggest piece of shit in the world we use we block out we numb if we are more accepting of vulnerability the flip of that is obviously do we want our leaders to be vulnerable or is that actually do we expect our leaders because otherwise who's going to run the show I was just wondering where you stand on the whole kind of vulnerability and leadership for me it's critical I feel like there's two different schools of thought when it comes to leading like one is to be vulnerable and show compassion and empathy and hear it out from your staff like what they're going through or or have a more gentle or softer style of teaching 
But then there's that other style of, of, of being a leader and being firm and instilling fear into your employees and not showing any chinks in your armor and, you know, always being tough because it's a very tough and very challenging, high pressure industry. I mean, I'd love to see more vulnerability in the hospitality workforce from the leaders. Me personally, I think it goes without saying I am extremely vulnerable, especially in the past few years, more than ever. I work with different teams and I work with different cooks and chefs all over the world, especially when I go to do pop-ups and work abroad. And I'm so fun. I, I know I am. Like, I'm just so lighthearted and so chill. Yes, you can't continue to make the same mistake if we're working together over and over again. Then you will get some firmness. But I'm very calm and very gentle. I treat others the way that I want to be treated, not the other way that, like, you know, I've had plates thrown at me in the past. I've been chewed out on the line like badly, like I, I like in front of a whole dining room of people. I, I, I've been there for all that. It's never been my character as much as I've experienced it. And it's not something that I want to promote. I feel like leading with vulnerability is very powerful. It's more powerful than it's not. I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. But I think that people are very scared. And it's, you know, it's like the whole Brené Brown thing, dare to be vulnerable. Mm. And I understand why people are reluctant to. But I really hope that more and more people, the more people like yourself who've just shared so honestly like that, Adam, again, Adam Simmons is a massive one for sharing about things like this. The more people like yourselves in these positions that say it's okay to not be okay, Again, you yeah. only say alcohol was not the problem. It's the solution. Yeah, because if I really look back, it was the solution to really bad mental health, yeah. to really bad feelings of inadequacy, undiagnosed ADHD, all of those kind of things, you know. I think that's going to be a massive part for our industry is to kind of park the whole you're using bad you and instead say, why are you using? Why are you drinking? What can we do to help? And really opening those channels and saying, let's have a real conversation about this instead of, oh God, the bartender's drinking, let's maybe fire them or make them a different, you know, make them a reception or, you know, like there has to be that more really, really honest look inward, I think, as an industry, which we're doing. And people like you are massively contributing. And I really appreciate that. I did have one last question. One of the privileges about having this podcast is that I know that a lot of listeners themselves are struggling. They're struggling to kind of balance the pressures of working in a kitchen. They're using, they don't necessarily know what to do. I was just wondering if you had any kind of part words for anyone listening who might be struggling right now, like what they could do. I can only speak from my experience and I had to come to the understanding that I was worth it. And I know when you're deep in the shit, when you're full of substance and when you're full of remorse and, and fear and resentment and insecurity and all this stuff, it's really, really hard to find that self-worth. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I just, I knew, I knew I could be better and I knew I could stand for more. And I just, I knew I was killing myself and I didn't want to live that way anymore. I also knew that a solution existed and that solution for me, my story is 12 steps. Okay, if you're doing smart recovery, or if you are, are doing this, or if you're doing that, or if you don't want to do 12 steps, because all you hear is God, 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 I'm telling you, I was that person. And 12 steps is what really saved my life. I was at a meeting last night, you know, and I, and I don't go to my home group every week, because I'm not in town or whatever reason. But I was there last night talking about like not putting this thing in the rearview mirror. And I shared about being vulnerable. And I shared about how I have to come here and like, 
and I can't just sit there. Like I need to open my mouth and I need to vocalize and I need to hug everybody. And like, I need to dial back in and tap back into this program. And then I left charged up, right. And 12 steps and, and, and giving myself to that program and mucking guys, taking them through the big book, right. Step 12, carrying the message to other addicts and alcoholics. Like this is what keeps my daily practice and my spiritual tank going. So if you're listening to me right now and you're struggling and you can hear this energy and, and drive and passion in my voice, it comes from 12 steps. So don't yeah. knock it until you try it and just recognize that, you know, you're worth it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. When you just said I'm worth it, my eyes even teared up because you're right. I'd never thought I was worth it. And it takes time to get there. And I'm starting to finally realize that. I am worth it and everybody is worth it. And yes. I think the thing about 12 steps, which is amazing and the reason it works so well, it is connection. And the best thing you can do for yourself is find somebody who you connect with, who hear, who shares your story and realize that you're not alone. You're not the only person, you know, and there's some other incredible organizations like Ben's Friends, um, there's the mm. Chow Meetings. We Recover Loudly has their own peer-to-peer -peer meetings as well. Get connected get connected and stop feeling like you're alone because, you know, again, it's a 12 step thing, but it's the same in all of these types of groups. You know, we say we will love you until you can love yourself. Right. And that's for me was one of the most powerful things to finally, to be in a group of people that will love you and hold you until not, not when, but just until, you know, there's no time limit on that. We're not saying we'll give you a week and then we expect you to be better We'll do it until you love yourself. I think that's just one of the most powerful things about those types of groups. So Chef Dev, bloody loved it. Thank you <laughs> so much. Episode 25. Yeah. I've the podcast now. Close the series. No, I went. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Perhaps I'll get you on for episode 70. <laughs> I'm down. Well. I'm in. Yeah, if I'm, listen, if I'm still going at episode 70, it better be in a fancy recording studio by then. <laughs> I'm so proud of you, right? These things Aww. take resiliency and you're one of the very, as I mentioned at the beginning, you're one of the very, very, very few, I can count on one hand, of people that actually saw it through. So, I mean, it speaks volumes to your character and your drive. And uh, I have no Thanks. doubt that you're going to be doing it for a long time. Oh, blessed. Well, it's also massively down to people like yourselves who are willing to share their story and use their story to help others, because that's the whole point of the show. We're recovering loudly to stop others dying quietly. And so thank you so much for sharing your story, because I know for a fact you would have helped someone today by doing that. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to come back. And if anybody wants to reach out to, to me, like I'm at Chef Devin, D-E-V-A-N on Instagram and TikTok info at chefdev.ca like I always I always welcome people to reach out to me directly and people do reach out uh, from a recovery standpoint so please don't feel like you can't no oh, absolutely I'll put all of that in the show notes as well Amazing. thank you so much chef dev speak soon thank you for tuning in to we recover loudly please stay tuned for future episodes subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends make sure to follow us on instagram and linkedin for more updates on at we recover loudly if you're struggling with addiction and are looking for support, please refer to the resources listed in the show notes or alternatively check out the website www.werecoverloudly.com. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, fill in a contact sheet on the website and we will be in touch. We'd love to hear from you and have you share your experiences. This podcast has been produced in association with The Burnt Chef Project and hosted by me, Shell, recovering loudly so that others do not die quietly. Quietly.